0: I'm Aaron Welsh, and this is This Podcast Will Kill You. Welcome to another episode in our mini-series of bonus content that we've been putting out over the past few months. If this is your first time tuning in, these bonus episodes are a way of exploring more deeply some aspect of what Aaron and I talked about in our regular season episode the previous week. So for instance, we followed up our multiple sclerosis episode with a bonus episode on the Epstein-Barr virus, and our chlamydia episode with a bonus about other chlamydia species affecting koalas and other animals. The beauty of these bonus episodes is that we get to enlist the help of an expert and absolutely pepper them with questions, both on the topic of interest as well as their careers. I have really enjoyed putting these episodes together, and I've learned so much about an incredibly wide range of topics. And this particular bonus episode is no exception. Last week, Aaron and I told the story of tetanus, a deadly but fortunately vaccine preventable disease that is caused by the spore forming, toxin producing, anaerobic bacterial species Clostridium tetani. Most of you are probably familiar with tetanus and, like me, have a healthy fear of stepping on a rusty nail. But what many of you may not know is just how prevalent neonatal tetanus used to be and still is today in places with limited access to vaccines. Neonatal tetanus usually occurs when the umbilical stump becomes infected with the tetanus bacterium, which can happen while cutting the cord with a non-sterile tool, for example. And if you haven't listened to the tetanus episode yet, I recommend that you stop here, go listen to it, and then come back to this episode. But I'll give a quick recap here anyway, just to kind of preface what we'll be talking about in this bonus episode. While discussing the history of tetanus last week, I spent a fair amount of time talking about neonatal tetanus among enslaved people in the American South before the Civil War. Neonatal tetanus in the South was an extremely prevalent and deadly infection, said to be responsible for up to two-thirds of the deaths among infants born to enslaved people. And this led to it having a reputation of being a disease of the South, especially of enslaved people. And last week, I asked whether it was indeed a, quote, disease of fatal frequency, solely of the South, or whether Northern physicians simply weren't looking for it as much. I used the example of neonatal tetanus in the South during this time to illustrate two different themes— One is that you have to consider the focus of medical studies as a factor of time and place. Southern doctors were more likely to observe neonatal tetanus because they were employed by enslavers to monitor the health of enslaved people, whereas Northern doctors lacked both the reason to look for this disease as well as the opportunity, for lack of a better word, to observe it in a larger group of people, especially those whose consent was not or could not be given. And the other theme is how the institution of slavery is one example of a structure that led to physicians making observations of populations rather than individuals, giving them a bird's eye view of how disease spreads. And this is what basically led to the birth of epidemiology. These two themes are not at all of my own creation, but rather feature extensively in the latest book by my guest for this episode, Dr. Jim Downs. Dr. Downs' book, Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine, is a new and necessary re-examination of how we tell the story of the origins of epidemiology. Did this field come about during a London cholera epidemic with Jon Snow and the Broad Street Pump? Or did it emerge in army hospitals, on slave ships, and within colonies, as physicians collected information or outright exploited non-consenting subjects? Dr. Downs joins me in this bonus episode to explore some of the ideas presented in his fantastic book, and I cannot wait to dive in. So let's just take a quick break here, and then we'll get started.
1: My name is Jim Downs. I'm the author of Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transform Medicine. I am currently the Gilder Lehrman National Endowment for the Humanities Professor of History and Civil War Studies at Gettysburg College.
0: Awesome. Thank you so very, very much for joining me today. I am so excited to discuss your book because I feel like it fits in really well with a lot of the themes that we discuss on the podcast, especially the importance of placing our understanding of medical or scientific developments in this broader historical context. So let's get into that context. In your book, you explore how colonialism, slavery, and war during the period of the 1750s through the 1860s led to this huge shift in medicine. People began to study populations rather than individuals, essentially kicking off the field of epidemiology. Can you explain what it is about this period that led to this revolution in thought?
1: Right. So the key word there would be population. So doctors had studied patients since the beginning of time. And there have also been scores of doctors throughout the early modern period and even before then that also studied populations. But what you see happening beginning in 1755 is the rise of studies of populations. And that's not coming purely out of a medical question it's coming out of the biggest social transformations of the mid 18th century, namely the rise of the slave trade, and then the expansion of colonialism and the growth of empire. And then both of those forces kind of coalesce by the mid to the mid 19th century with the rise of war, the Crimean war and the civil war, which again, battlefields become laboratories in which populations are again studied. So Ultimately it's the ways in which imagine the slave trade. It's about the movement, the violent, brutal transport of enslaved Africans to the Caribbean, to North America, to South America. And it's all done for economic purposes, but it ultimately created major medical crises. And so there were doctors deployed on those ships to care for the crew. But ultimately, they realized that so many people were becoming sick and dying on those ships, that they began this massive effort to study the spread of epidemics. And what I also noticed, and this is what I think separates my work from maybe someone who's found a doctor from 13th century Venice, is that these doctors are all tied together through a military network and the military is a massive bureaucracy and the military demands these physicians to, doc- to document their observations and to keep records. So now what ends up happening is um, doctors are now in contact with what's happening on various slave ships throughout the Atlantic. They're trading information. They're developing preventative protocols. They're coming up with treatments. Whereas before, there was no real mechanism, there was no real umbrella to knit these doctors together. And one of the things I'll say before, because I could talk about this forever and ever and ever, one of the things that blows my mind um, as someone living in the 21st century was that the creation of what we understand as the American Medical Association is a relatively new phenomenon. It was around, it gets developed in the 1840s. So prior to the creation of those professional networks, sure, there were societies, sure, there was the circulation of some journals. But really, the military creates a bureaucracy that allows for the studies of populations that leads to the development of epidemiology.
0: It's incredibly fascinating and i don't think i had a true appreciation for just how much bureaucracy did <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> in terms of the creation of epidemiology and i also want to talk about a couple other tools that are key in studying the spread of disease in populations and that is statistics and mapping and can you talk about how those two tools were involved also in these you know aspects of colonialism slavery and war.
1: So between 1750 and 1850, this is a century prior to the, to the development of germ theory and the discovery of microbes and to the understanding really of how bacteria lead to the spread of disease and even to how virus leads to the spread of disease. So oftentimes all doctors could do was count. They could count. And this goes true for the, um, cases of field hospitals. They could count the number of people that are minute, the number of people who die, the number of people who are released. So statistics emerges as a way of trying to create a rational order to respond to what seems to be really irrational. And that is the rapid morbidity and mortality. So that's part of what happens. The other part of it is that colonialism is obviously very much invested in numbers. And so there's already a built-in investment in cataloging things and thinking about things in terms of numbers. There is an early science before statistics called nosology, which is a sort of branch of science that develops, that again, draws on quantitative and empirical analysis. So you see that at work within the medical records. But the other part of this really fascinating is that if you think about empire, empires require maps. Empires require maps to not only track voyages, but also as a way to assert power over a particular geography. And so mapping is um, integral. It's essential to colonial and imperial endeavors. And so these maps are already situated. When an epidemic blows up, it's just coloring in the map. It's filling out the map. It's using the map to tell a different story. So today, when we're thinking about outbreaks of COVID and we're thinking about mapping and surveillance, and all of these are important, critical hallmarks of epidemiology and necessary for us to understand how disease spreads, the genealogy, the origin of that mapping practice, whether or not it's efficacious, originates with colonialism and empire.
0: And the history of medicine in general, I feel like, is often told as this series of discoveries and accomplishments, right? With the leading protagonist as the scientist logic triumphing over superstition. But as much as we may like to pretend that there's a natural, orderly progression in medical knowledge, the truth is that it's driven by many different factors, in part by shifting incentives and opportunity. So can you talk a bit about how colonialism, slavery, and war incentivized understanding the spread of disease, while also providing opportunities for physicians to study these populations of disabilities? enfranchised or oppressed individuals in a way that they hadn't been able to previously.
1: Right. So just to put it like, just to give a concrete example to sort of answer your question, um, one of the chapters of the book looks at an explosion of What they don't know at the time, they call it fever, but it eventually, this is like the sort of mystery of the chapter is they don't know what it is. It ultimately is yellow fever. And so an outbreak of yellow fever happens and the ship, there was a British vessel and it was policing the coast of West Africa for any signs of the international slave trade. Ultimately, the ship um, stops at Cape Verde um, just as a holding place before it makes its trip voyage back to uh, London. When it stops, when it eventually arrives at London, everyone says, this ship is infected with uh, yellow fever and you you need to be quarantined. And there it's this explosive debate about lockdowns and about quarantine and about all of the things that I was writing about in 2017, <laughs> which I thought like people are never going to understand. Like they're not going to understand. Quarant- I was like literally in a coffee shop in New York being like, how do I, I can't call the chapter quarantine. No one's going to get that. Um, and, and like, The year 2020 is like, hold my beer. Like, (laughs) guess, 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 you have no idea what's coming. So, um, so ultimately what happens is uh, there's a question of like, well, how did this originate? Where did it originate? And so the British military, the British and the government send a doctor to Cape Verde. And when he arrives there, he begins this massive effort to interview all of the people on the island. And basically what he's doing is contact tracing. And he's drawing on the narratives and the testimonies of mostly enslaved and colonized washerwomen because they had been dealing with the, quote, dirty linen. And this could be potentially infectious. Now, what's fascinating is these women had no idea he was coming, but they understood the incubation period. They had already mapped where it spread from one place to another. They had sort of figured out you know, this house got infected, but this house didn't get infected. And he puts together their story and he produces what I call the largest inventory of a patient narrative of black people in the 19th century. So to go back to your question, We often say, he's the hero. He figured this out. He traced it. And look, he did a lot of work. The point is to not discredit his work. But the point is, as many medical anthropologists have said, as many um, people interested in narrative medicine have talked about, it's about centering the patient narrative. That his knowledge, his ideas could not exist without their contribution. And so when doctors eventually figured out it was yellow fever, it wasn't just from Mick Williams' um, identification of pathology. It was about washerwomen noticing the black vomit and to know, wait a second, I know these people are sick, but there's some, something's up here. The vomit's black. And not to just say, oh, they ate something bad. Like they were noticing the symptoms and then it becomes codified through his formal publication. And so my my work is to try to say how does the experience of colonialism and slavery and war create create new opportunities of knowledge production and how can we also acknowledge patients contribution to science?
0: Right, exactly. And because it's not just about these individuals that formerly hadn't been recognized as the sources of information themselves and like local knowledge, but also the individuals themselves whose bodies gave up this information. And so how do we incorporate that more into storytelling of, you know, the history of science and medicine?
1: So I think it is just the word you said there, storytelling. It's about how we narrate the story. So um, a colleague of mine who's a preeminent historian of medicine, whose name I won't say, but he's really smart and he's written about the Cape Verde incident. I actually uncovered it in the archive in 2013 and I was sitting on it because it takes a while to work on a book. And so that was going to be one chapter and I was working on other chapters. In the meantime, he... He uncovered it as well, and he wrote a chapter on it, but he turned the doctors into the protagonist in the story. I turned the washerwomen into the protagonist of the story. Neither one of us is, is right. History is an interpretation, but it's about how we tell the stories. In his account, these women don't even appear. In my account, they've been lifted off the page as purely just informants, and cast as important contributors to the development of knowledge. And so that's how I think the, that's what I think the answer is. It's, it's talking about why and how the patients matter. Um, There's also a new book called Medical Bondage by Deirdre Cooper Owen about the rise of gynecology um, in the American South that developed as a result of J. Marion Sims um, experiments on enslaved women. Uh, Again, Deirdre Cooper Owen, a very good friend of mine, a very good colleague, is not saying that Sims isn't important. She's actually putting him in the context of many other doctors that were like Sims, but she's also giving voice and giving textual space in the manuscript to the enslaved women, not just as objects of study, but rather as interlocutors, as people who were there and who were possible, you know were contributing to this new development of ideas sometimes i feel like it's a really academic and people are like yeah that sounds like really cool but i don't see it working out and then i have one word for you taste of loss of taste of smell and taste when the COVID pathology first came out and i was one of the people who first got COVID in march of 2020 i was actually flying from la to new york i Felt a little tired, but I thought it was jet lag. I felt a little nauseous. I thought it was like something bad in the airport. I noticed immediately I lost my my sense of taste and smell. It was not reported as part of the pathology. It wasn't until Kelly Ripper on our morning television show read an article in the New York Times that all my friends in LA were like, Jim, uh, Kelly Rippa has read this article in the time. And so the question becomes, how did the loss of taste and smell become part of the pathology of COVID? And it became part because patients started reporting it and doctors did not dismiss it as silly. I'm sure a bunch did, right? But a bunch didn't. And so then it becomes recognized as a hallmark of it. So in other words, when I say recognizing patients, we have to say that we are in a process of recognizing patient narratives even today like so it's it's not just an the academic theory that sounds good it's actually how we understood what covid is and how we're going to understand what long covid is as well right it's going to be patients reporting and doctors then going through that material and making sense of it and saying okay this does works that doesn't work but the patient is important the patient is a is an architect of knowledge in this in these moments
0: Absolutely. And I feel like the shifting definitions of disease or the boundaries around disease classification are always changing. And it's exactly. it's a topic that we've talked about before on the podcast in the context of symptoms versus signs. Signs being things doctors can observe, symptoms being things that patients report and how that shift of being able to measure these signs like temperature or heart rate that kind of took the attention away from the patient. And I feel like it's all still, but it's still happening. Like we're still, we still don't do a great job of it. But one of the things I thought was really interesting in your book is that it kind of went up into right before germ theory became a thing, started. And yet still there were these hypotheses or these prevailing notions of the way disease spread, namely miasma theory or contagion theory. Can you talk about how those two prevailing thoughts influenced this birth of epidemiology?
1: Yeah. So one of the things to think about is that, um, so miasma theory would just be people would notice everyone's getting sick and they don't understand how, and they can See it as a contagious um, phenomenon. They could say, well, this person got sick, then that person got sick. So they believe in contagion. And then they're like, well, wait, where's the origin? And so they would turn to rotten vegetation, corpse, um, unsanitary, like an unsanitary mass of trash. And they would say from that unsanitary mass of trash, there would be these poisonous vapors emanating from it. And these poisonous vapors are moving through the air and that's what's getting people sick. Um, And then people said, no, (laughs) I don't think so. And so colonialism becomes another important testing ground to figure that out. One of the places is in in Malta, um, which is in the center of the Mediterranean. And it's an important quarantine hub. It's an important quarantine hub for ships going from Europe to the Middle East. It's an important, important, uh, hub from North Africa to Europe. And so what happens is, uh, You have two populations of people that begin to be studied, Muslim migrants and washerwomen. And the first is like the washerwomen are sort of like they come up in the Cape Verde chapter and they come up here again. And as a historian, I thought when I saw them in Cape Verde, I thought, oh, it's interesting. It's important. When I saw them again in Malta, I was like, these are an important a group of people that are central to the development of knowledge and medicine during this period and have not really been cast as as like leading thinkers or leading actors. And so what happens is the ships go into a port, the ships quarantined, it's isolated. No one can come on and off. They have to wait two weeks in order for whatever's there to eventually not be there. And so these washerwomen ultimately are going on the ship to collect the dirty linens and then return the linens. And some doctor recognizes they're not becoming sick. And so automatically, this sort of like, they become the subjects to actually prove that contagion doesn't work. And they become the subjects to for doctors to launch these massive investigations into what causes people to become sick. Because it can't just be, it can't be miasma and it can't be contagion. And so the washerwomen are definitely part of the medical treatise, but the other major group are Muslim migrants. Muslims who are returning from the annual pilgrimage, the Hajj, are in ships. Um, They're in Egypt. They're in Malta. They're in other places. And again, going back to your first question, it's a population. They start realizing that these ships are, quote, infected. They say they're infected. They place them into quarantine, and then they realize plague or cholera or another epidemic is not spreading, so it un so the sort of it sort of undermines this argument that contagion is there. And again, think about it: like if you're in a small town or you're in a big city, and you're trying to figure out if contagion works, there's no real mechanism to actually figure it out. But think about how colonialism around the around the sort of um, movement of Muslims um, creates a massive bureaucracy within those ports that allows doctors to record copious information about who's on the ships what they're doing on the ships if they're and how they're being under constant surveillance and so all of a sudden now these are major test subject populations that begin to undermine contagion theory and lead to, epidemiology, meaning leading to a more investigative um, method of understanding outbreak. And 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 so just one of the, the points that happens is that these doctors are stationed all throughout the world. These British doctors, they're in the ports of Malta, they're in Jamaica, they're in the Caribbean, they're in India, they're in South America. And what happens is when they return to London, they say, we've learned a lot. And they create the epidemiological society in 1850. So, so that the actual deployment of these physicians throughout the empire and their arrival back to London to create the epidemiological field proves how this was a global practice and it grew out of these key moments.
0: And that's kind of where the classic story of epidemiology usually begins, right? With Jon Snow and the Broad Street Pump in the London cholera epidemic of the 1850s. But that story, as you point out in your book, is really only a small piece of the puzzle of how epidemiology truly began. So how do you think that story should be told today? And where does John Snow fit into it?
1: What I would say is the story of, of of John Snow and the origins of epidemiology is that he remains a really important critical figure in tracing the origin of cholera to the water pump. That is absolutely his discovery, and he ought to be lauded for that. What I would add is that he is not a lonely pioneer, sort of courageously um, going into the uh, poor neighborhood in London to search for, a cause, for for the cause of cholera, what what caused it to spread. He's part of a larger cohort of physicians. And he's part of a group of doctors who've been studying the origins of epidemics from the 1830s, 1840s, and even earlier. And so the story that i that I spoke about earlier about John McWilliam going to Cape Verde to study the origin of yellow fever. He and John Snow rub shoulders to the Epidemiological Society. They knew each other. So McWilliam actually goes first. McWilliam goes to Africa first, and he does the interviews first. He creates maps first. He does the investigations first. So John Snow is actually following in the footsteps of imperial doctors who walked through the west coast of Africa to uncover the spread of cholera. Yet he is actually part of a larger movement of physicians who have begun this practice of Investigating the cause and spread of disease, and so he's not a lonely pioneer. He's a he's among a whole group. So while his discovery that cholera is related to the water is genius, his methods he learned from other he learned from other uh, doctors, and that's something that I think um, needs to be recognized within public health textbooks and so forth, that there was this whole group of people who actually were doing those methods. But here's the point. Their methods did not develop purely out of laboratory science. Their methods developed because slavery and colonialism had made populations available. So when we think about their methods it's not just to say, hey, Snow has these methods. His methods came out of some, his of slavery and colonialism, and it came out of the ways in which those institutions created built environments that allowed doctors to study people. So that's the piece that really needs to be sort of underscored.
0: One thing I was thinking about was, how these early epidemiologists or the people that we would now reflect back on and call early epidemiologists, how did they view themselves? Did they view themselves as physicians? Did they view themselves as practicing a new kind of science? Like when did that recognition sort of shift or take place?
1: It's interesting. That's a great question. and I think that they view themselves as physicians. They understood that. I mean, most of them are doctors. They're not the way that we would think of someone who has a master's in public health as an epidemiologist um, today. And I think they see themselves as beginning a new science, beginning a new form of, uh, of information gathering and knowledge production. And I think that's in part because they create the epidemiological society. I mean- it's really interesting. If I could critique my own book, um, you know, look, I mean, I was so into the sources, so into the stories. or so many things that um, I kind of thought, okay, I have to hit this. I have to do that. After publishing the book, I'm like, wow, I could have really just did an entire chapter in the epidemiological society. But it seemed to me like it was such an obvious Peace, And, but that was just me being so in my head and thinking like everybody knew this and everybody doesn't know this. And so the reality of it is, is for them to actually create a society signals that they see their work as different from typical patient care, clinical practice, and that they see their work as sort of embarking on a new mode of scientific inquiry.
0: So you talked about how, you know, bureaucracy, statistics, mapping, how all of those tools were really important in creating this notion of epidemiology and this new way of of seeing things. But without something like journalism, perhaps, would it have stayed a little bit more closely, you know, enveloped in colonialism or in slavery or in in wartime?
1: Right. So the, that's a great question. So one of the things I notice is that the Crimean War figures into the book as its own chapter in large part because the Crimean War is often considered one of the first major wars and major modern wars. And that is to say that it was one of the first times you had British journalists deployed to the battlefield and were reporting back. Um, exactly what was happening. And one of the things, and I talk about this in in the book, one of the journalists is talking about combat, but also talking about the high rates of morbidity and mortality among the British troops. And the British public would have known about unsanitary conditions in prisons. They would have known about them in hospitals, which at the time were not for middle-class people. They were basically shelters for the poor and dispossessed. So They may have thought about hospitals as dirty places. They may have thought about prisons as incubators for medical disorders, but those were populations of people they really didn't care about. Now that they've sent their sons, their fathers, their husbands, their brothers to the war, and they're actually becoming sick and dying in the hospital, then it's like, wait a minute, you're basically exposing hospitals as these unsanitary places and people are now becoming invested in why. And so that's in fact, that's what sort of inspires Florence Nightingale, who is a major figure in the book uh, to lead a corps of nurses to Crimea. And when she gets there, she does care for the wounded soldiers. She does, you know, put bandages on them, and provides comfort and does all of this other stuff. But she's also, um, very much interested in why more soldiers are becoming sick and dying in British hospitals and noticing they're not becoming sick and dying in the French and the Russian hospitals. And so she becomes, um, What I think is an epidemic, she becomes an epidemiologist in in many respects. And within the nursing literature and among some schools of public health, she's recognized for her uh, contributions. But by and large, within the larger history of medicine, she's recognized as a pioneering nurse, but not as a pioneering epidemiologist. And, um, when she returns back to London to Crimea from Crimea, she meets with Queen Victoria and with um Prince Albert in their Scottish home, which I actually think if you watch Downton Abbey, it's like in Downton Abbey. <laughs> but that's like when they go. <laughs> uh, anyway, so she meets there. So we're just like really trying to create some images. And he base Albert says, Listen, I have a tutor and he's a statistician. And so he teaches her statistics. And so this goes back to your earlier question about statistics as a sort of way of understanding and measuring epidemics. She becomes inducted into the National Statistics Academy. She's one of the first re- women, if not the first. I, um, and so she's a leading thinker. And, and, and of course, and I want to say this too, just she's a problematic person in lots of ways. There's a lot of literature coming out about how she's racist. She's a white supremacist. She's all of those things. But my argument is that she's also leading the field of epidemiology, and both things can be true. Uh, She can be a white supremacist and she could be a statistician.
0: We've talked a lot about these early physicians, early epidemiologists observing groups of people without their consent or without, or observing people who can't or have not given their consent. But it's not just about observation a lot of the time. Sometimes it is outright you know, exploitation. And so the dehumanization extends even further. And there's one example in particular that I'm thinking of that you discussed in your book uh, involving smallpox. And I was wondering if you could describe this instance for our listeners and also share your thoughts on why so many examples of exploitation like this seem to have been largely erased from medical history.
1: Okay, so just first, I mean, a lot of the stories of exploitation have been erased in large part because the notion of sort of medical ethics is not really a thing. Bioethics is not really a thing until the mid-20th century. So that's part of it. A lot of this comes out of the Nuremberg trials, and that sort of begins a public conversation um, about what the boundaries of doctors and the boundaries of scientific practice, et cetera. One of the things that I study and I study it both in this book and in my first book, sick from freedom is the fact that most people don't know this. And this is the sort of like mind blowing thing that I sort of uncover without being self aggrandizing, but it was just really like going through sitting in Washington, DC, reading medical records and finding references to smallpox and being like, wait a minute, I study civil war. I study the reconstruction. I don't know anything about this. I've never heard it. I checked all the indexes of the major books. No one has mentioned it. By taking all of these records from the military that have created this bureaucracy, I pieced together the fact that at the moment of emancipation, over 60,000 formerly enslaved people died of smallpox. And no one has sort of talked about that. Now, if you think about it, it's actually not that surprising because during the civil war, more soldiers die from disease than from battle. So again, when we think of the civil war, we think of it, you know, the heroic noble death at the battle of Gettysburg or at the battle of, you know, Antietam, we don't realize that most people, most soldiers died not from battlefield wounds or battlefield combat. They died from infectious disease because there was no such thing as germ theory. They died from GI problems. They died from pneumonia, et cetera. So the smallpox epidemic fits within that context really well. And so when smallpox began to spread among Confederate or Union troops, uh, there were two ways of doing, two ways of responding. The first was they could fall back on the century-long belief of quarantining people, just literally taking someone who was infected and isolating them. And that would prevent the virus from spreading. The second was there was this whole question about vaccination versus inoculation. And inoculation was a practice developed here in the United States in the 17th century when an enslaved person told cotton Mather hey listen I know there's a smallpox epidemic and smallpox basically produce a vesicle and in it it gets filled with lymph a, a fluid he said if you cut open the vesicle and then you cut open someone who's vulnerable their arm and you take the lymph from their arm and you put it into the arm of someone who is vulnerable they can develop a mild version of the infection, and then clear it. Vaccination is the same practice, but you use cowpox. And there's a whole history of that. So during the war, they're trying to get their hands on cowpox, but it's hard to transport cowpox you know, during a battlefield on a piece of glass. It's not happening, okay? And so there's that's not working. So they go to this thing of like, all right, let's go back to arm-to-arm inoculation. But in the process, it they're conferring, they're not conferring immunity. They're actually, you know, transmitting things like syphilis and other bloodborne diseases and other problems. And so, again, the Confederacy has a military bureaucracy. So the doctors are now able to say, out of 80 troops, these are the five cases that have worked. These are the 20 that haven't worked. These are the 15 that have done X. Prior to that, these physicians were isolated. They didn't really, there wasn't a smallpox epidemic in the South before the war. They didn't know what worked. They didn't know what what could work or what what didn't work or could, whatever. Here's the thing. Someone says, we can't use the soldiers because it's causing more problems. Let's turn to enslaved infants and children because they fell back on this pro-slavery parable that enslaved people were in an idyllic countryside, they were in a very comfortable position, they were healthy, they were the happy slave. And so the Confederacy um, basically deploys uh, physicians throughout the South to go and purposely infect children and even better infants, because they're even purer with smallpox, then they would come back two or three weeks later, they would check if their body had in fact taken the virus. And if they had started to produce the lymph and they would take the lymph and then use it to give it to white people as a form of vaccination. Now, this is a really interesting point because I've studied smallpox for over 15 years. It's not in the literature. It's not, it's, you know, it's not really anywhere. Um, The use of children to harvest vaccine matter was not invented, however, by these Southern doctors. This is a practice that happens throughout Europe. Um, As I mentioned in the book, King Carlos of Spain wants to get people vaccinated in Mexico, so he infects a bunch of orphans in Spain puts them on a boat, sends them to Mexico. Once they're in Mexico, he infects another group of orphans, sends them to Vietnam. I mean, this is the trafficking of children. I I just gave a talk recently at the University of Virginia, and a medical historian said, I have a case. It's 1810. The orphans in England, the same thing was happening. So this is a widespread practice around vaccination, and it's and, and at a time when we didn't have medical ethics, it was it was com- it was these kinds of things were I think more common than not. Now, here's what's really interesting to me as a historian: it's often so banal, it's often so commonplace, there isn't the need to write it down. So it's like they don't think they need to write down like these kinds of things, and so what happens is during a war. The bureaucracy ends up capturing a lot of stuff. It ends up serving as a net. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, why is this doctor being sent out? And this other doctor is telling 40 other doctors to do it. Wait, it's in the command. It's in the order. It's like there's lots of medical practices and lots of medical ideas that aren't articulated, but they're just understood.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we get back, I want to shift to talking about what it's like to actually be a historian and some of the other areas that you're interested in. Welcome back, everyone. I have really been enjoying chatting with Dr. Jim Downs about how important it is to recognize the role that slavery, colonialism, and war has played in the development of epidemiology as a science. But now we're going to turn to some more personal questions. Besides the origin story of epidemiology, what other areas have you worked on?
1: Yeah, I'm really... um... I'm really interested in the history of gender and sexuality. That's always been a big piece. I have a book uh, called stand by me, the forgotten history of gay liberation. And there is a medical narrative to it. And that's basically that when we think about the seventies, we think about it um, at least for white gay men as this huge orgy. And it's like, how much of that is true and how much of that was used to rationalize and explain the spread of HIV. And what I learned was that policymakers, newspaper journalists, public health people, doctors, saw HIV, the explosion of HIV in the early 80s and were like, well, what caused this? And they immediately turned to sex culture. And while that's true to a point, it's not in another way. And what it's done is it's actually... Um, turn the 70s into one note. And it's failed to see that in the 1970s, for instance, there was the creation of the first ever gay church. Actually, it was in 1967. Like, I never knew gay people created their own church, their own synagogues, their own prayer groups. So there's this whole religious movement that develops out of the 70s because you couldn't necessarily go to a gay bar. You could go to a prayer group. You could, you know. So that was interesting. They created, you know, we talk about hiv aids we talk about the political networks that got the word out it came out through the volunteer press it came out from newspapers that gay men and lesbians and trans people created for themselves and they weren't and i tell my students this all the time like they couldn't put it on their resume like you people have all these activities or like i'm putting it on my resume it's like this doesn't go on the resume like they would get fired if it was on their resume so they create a whole newspaper culture and they, you know, so there's the, the first ever gay bookstore was created. And so I grew up at a time in the nineties where there were feminists and gay bookstores. All those, a lot of those have basically died, but in the seventies, those were another site of community building and community spaces long before you had community centers. So when people say it's just the bars and the bathhouses and the beaches where gay people were coming together, I'm like, no, there's churches, there's bookstores, there's community centers. And both can be true. There can be lots of sex and there could be that. But the point that I came at it from a medical perspective, which was really important, especially as a gay man, was that we got to stop this narrative about HIV spreads because of promiscuity. HIV spreads if you come in contact with the virus. You could have lots of sex with lots of different people and never catch HIV. You could have be completely monogamous and on your wedding night, with another man, have sex for the first time and be exposed to it. And that's it. And it's not. So I'm trying to like really dispel those kinds of rumors and myths in the book and really point to the ways in which gay people try to create a sense of culture in order to create a sense of community.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. And is this something that you always wanted to research? Like when you were a kid, did you want to grow up to become a historian? Like when did you become interested in these in these fields? Yeah.
1: So I think when I was a kid, I wanted to be an uh, a rapper slash actress, more powerful than three Cleopatras. That's Lauren Hill. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to become an. I wanted to become an actor. I think. I mean, mostly then. Uh, It was when I was in college at University of Pennsylvania, uh, a friend of mine said, do you want to volunteer at the Gay Community Center? And essentially, we went there on Wednesday nights, and all of these men who had left Philadelphia or died of HIV stuffed all their belongings from the 70s into paper bags. And the Gay Community Center, the William Way Center, was at the time dealing with Runaway youth, um, dealing with uh, helping trans people, HIV testing, dry queen bingo, but had a rea- knew that they had to keep their history because the major libraries and archives in the Philadelphia area, which is like the hub of history, a major historical hub, weren't taking them. And so everything was like stuffed into an attic. And I started looking at these documents, and I wasn't a librarian, but just writing down what I saw. And I learned that that's also what happened in New York and in other places, other gay places. And so it was coming in contact with those sources and coming in contact with that history and understanding that history is doing political work. um, That's what sort of really got me interested. Uh, And then when I was in graduate school, I read a lot of literature by black women and slave narratives. And so I started researching the history of slavery. And I, again, um, uncovered all of these major records about the period immediately following slavery, which we call emancipation. And I just thought, wow, that has to be told. It was the medical stuff mostly because most of the history is about uh, the important moments, uh, citizenship, suffrage. Um, So I think it was like, for me, the sources. It's always the documents. I mean I don't necessarily I mean I might have lots of different questions. I might have be interested in lots of different things, but what actually leads to the creation of a book is always going to be some kind of record, some kind of document that I don't think has been told.
0: What have you encountered as some of the biggest misconceptions about being a historian when someone you when you introduce yourself and you say oh, i'm a historian what are they what are some of the questions you get and the misconceptions you find okay first of
1: all, i know <laughs> yeah i get questions all the time like they think they they i said i'm a historian i'm not wikipedia or google they always <laughs> like like oftentimes they have questions and they're so they're so they're such strange questions And it's like, but they already know the answer. They just want, it's like final jeopardy. It's Mm -hmm. like, every time I meet somebody, it's like final jeopardy. They're like, do you know? And I'm like, yeah, I actually don't field history questions. Like (laughs) go on a game show. Um, So that's one of them. I I think this is like one of the misconceptions. I think doing podcasts, like I was trained by Eric Foner. I was trained by African-American scholars. I was trained to bring what I've learned to the public. I was not trained to sit in a circle with other academics or in front of a big lecture hall and show people how smart I was. I was trained to say, you learn this and you have a responsibility to get out there and to change the conversation. And you don't do it by being aloof and being lofty and being, you do it by being real. And so like my my advisor, Eric Boner, like constantly was publishing in the nation. He's still alive. He's still doing lots of work. He's like, he always makes his work really accessible. So, and he never really, he never sat us down and was like, you need to do this. It was by example. And it was like, I remember once he was like kind of late for class and NBC News was like in the courtyard and he was like, yeah, I got to do something on Andrew Johnson today. I got him like, <laughs> he's on TV. And like, I was like checking my hair and makeup. I'm like, am I in background? Uh, but, like, but like I, and then within African-American studies and with being a part of that field in that world, there is a deep commitment among many to make knowledge accessible. So I think what most historians don't know is that most people don't know is like, I, a lot of us spend a lot of time doing this work, doing podcasts, tweeting, doing writing articles for the mainstream press, making the information available.
0: Yeah. It's so crucial. And it's something that I think not every graduate degree affords you, right? Like not, not everyone gets that sort of training, And what other opportunities are out there for someone with a PhD or a master's in history?
1: I think there's a lot. I mean, I think there's a lot in terms of just one of the great things about being a historian is you really learn how to research and you learn how to write. So that kind of goes into lots of other fields. I also should um, just give a sort of shout out to a company that I'm a partner of, which is called History Studio. And what we do at History Studios, we provide um, historical consultations to the entertainment profession. And so there's lots of people out there that are making documentaries that are in desperate need of historians to serve as consultants. There's lots of people who are making feature-length films and are doing series that are looking for historical consultants. And so I think that's like one of the other ways. Um, Lots of other historians traditionally go into museum work and other forms of public history. But increasingly, I mean, I think that historians um, are really good at learning how to read and write. And so, um, one of my colleagues at history studio, Erica Armstrong Dunbar is an executive producer on this show, Gilded Age. And the Gilded Age is a period piece It's HBO, but she's brilliant. So like if, She reads the script. She knows how to identify, you know, what is a good storyline? What is right? And do you know what? She appears at the end of the episode. She's the first historian ever to testify and to frame an episode. Normally it's just like the actors and the actresses and maybe the showrunners, She's framing it for the American public. And so she's actually changing and expanding the role of of historians by actually getting on there, getting to the public and saying, this is what this episode meant. This is what it meant to be a black person in the Gilded age. These were the kinds of indignities they faced. These were also the opportunities they confronted because a lot of times it's very easy to say as a historian, oh yes, black people suffer from discrimination. Yes but sometimes that obscures all of the major things they did. And what Dunbar says at the end of that episode is they created an entire publishing industry. There was a huge, uh, black newspapers, Yeah, you know, the whole industry of black newspapers that were developing during this time. So I, I think there's a lot that historians can do. I just think it's about people may not come to you as a historian, you have to come to them and you have to pitch them and you have to show what you can do. Um, and then, you know, hopefully that that'll change more as we progress. So we'll see.
0: That's that is so cool. I've got one last question for you and that will let you go. And that is when someone asks you why it's so important to know history or learn history, what do you tell them? What's your answer?
1: It's, it's about learning how to frame and learning how to frame a contemporary issue. So NBC News just broke a story yesterday uh that came out of ug university of georgia a study that white people don't really care about COVID um because they've heard it only affects black people and so you know we can talk about the merits of the study or not the point is if you read this article in isolation you can either just say it's um rubbish and push it aside or you can just say oh it's surprising But if you place it in historical context, you say, wow, it's actually part of a larger pattern. I mean, this actually happened during the Civil War. White people didn't care that black people were dying of smallpox. This actually happens before and even now with HIV. Um, HIV is no longer the largest growing group of people to contract HIV in the United States are not gay white men. They are black cisgender women in the South. And yet it's people don't think about it as much anymore. So it's like. When you think about history, it actually can illuminate patterns and it could actually help you better analyze and examine a particular issue.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Downs, for taking the time to chat with me today. I can already tell that this is a conversation that is going to stick with me for a very long time. And if you, listeners, would like to learn more about some of the things that we talked about today, do yourself a favor and go check out Dr. Downs' book, Maladies of Empire How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine. I'll post a link to the book as well as to Dr. Down's faculty page on our website, thispodcastwillkillyou.com. Also on our website are the sources for all of our episodes, transcripts, quarantine and placebo rita recipes, our bookshop.org affiliate account, Goodreads list, links to music by Bloodmobile, links to merch and Patreon, and so much more. Listen, follow, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondry Plus in the Wondry app. Thanks again to Bloodmobile for providing the music for this episode and all of our episodes. And thank you to you, listeners. I hope you liked this deep dive into the true origins of epidemiology. I know I had a great time. And a special thank you to our fantastic, generous patrons. We appreciate you so very much. We have got a brand new episode on a brand new topic coming out next week. So until then, keep washing those hands.